Good morning. Well, hopefully by now what we have done is we have turned in our Bibles to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, which Hegley's have just read to us, and this continues to build upon what it is that we've been covering over the course of these weeks together as we've been exploring the story of Bethlehem and God's plan of redemption through that small setting. And so now what we're going to do before we turn to the word is to turn to the Lord in prayer. And now, Father, what we want to do is quiet our hearts. Very possible we came here with some busy hearts. Hearts that maybe are somewhat crowded with all the various responsibilities, activities of these coming weeks. It's always a challenge with crowded hearts. Or sometimes we have a hard time identifying what's primary and what's secondary. Everything just seems to be equal. But then Sunday comes along, the Lord's Day. And we once again recalibrate and we determine what's premium, what's preeminent. It's you sending Christ into this world to die for our sins. It's your word. We have opportunity not to digest opinions, but rather to drink deeply from this well of truth that you've, you've provided for us. We're somewhat amazed we're already in the third Advent Sunday. Thank you for the way in which we've been able to knit together this sovereign plan that you had for Bethlehem as the centerpiece, small as it was, for bringing the Messiah into this world. And so, Father, what we want to do now is to be able to explore your word together. So pray now that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, and shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things still again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Making our way from Jerusalem, roughly six, a little less than seven miles, into Bethlehem. Of course, the scenery captures the attention when you look off to the side and you see you see shepherds out in the fields, tending to their flocks, tending to the sheep. We uh, have made our way from Jerusalem, and uh, it was now a Friday in October of uh, 2018. And arriving on the outskirts of Bethlehem, our tour guide stood up and said, this is as far as I can take you. His name was Jacob. 
bus driver's name was Isaac. Man, they were a pair. But because of the political climate in the West Bank, this was as far as he as a Jew could take us. It was needed now for an Arab to be able to guide us through uh, Bethlehem itself, including the Church of the Nativity. And so, arising from his seat next to Jacob, a man bowed ever so slightly with this extraordinary grin on his face. And he said, hello, in broken English, my name is Esau. I am a Christian Arab Palestinian from Bethlehem, and I love Jesus, and I love Jews. And I loved the look on the faces of the people as I allowed for my eyes to sweep from one side of that group of tourists to the other as they were trying to process what was just said to them. It would be this man whose name literally is Jesus who would take us to the manger of Jesus and he would be the one to be able as an Arab to guide and direct the tour group on through the Church of the Nativity to be able to see what it is that they've been anticipating viewing. Bethlehem. Never despise small settings. Bethlehem. Never overlook what might be considered to be small people. Bethlehem. And never get so caught up with outward appearances that you miss out on the internal realities of life. It's the story of Bethlehem and a young man by the name of David. How did, how did Samuel get there? These are volatile times. And now Samuel has been commissioned by God to, to anoint a new king. Well, what we need to do is to get our bearings and look at a map, if you would. And so with this map, what we want to be able to do is to understand a little bit about what's happening. And here is the setting in which Samuel would be coming from, Ramah. The challenge is, is that he would have to pass through Gibeah, which was the headquarters of the current king, whose name was Saul, who had, in essence, disenfranchised himself from God, and now alienated from God, it's time for a new king. Samuel, who had invested himself in Saul, would once again now have to fill his horn with oil and make his way from Ramah, his home tiff, through Gibeah, which was Saul's headquarters, on through Jerusalem. And you'll notice that this is about six to maybe seven miles southward in order to make your way to Bethlehem. And as, and as Samuel would be making his way, would he also be noticing flocks in the fields at night, or maybe during the day. 
as he's reflecting upon what it is that God was calling him to do, it's time for, it's time for a new king. What I want to do with you is we continue to explore what we're calling in this little mini-series for Advent, the Bethlehem story, is to draw out three significant ways by which God chooses to work in very unique times, distinctive times, unexpectedly in ways that will that will at first be overlooked by the general population until you have one of those one of those aha moments and you say, now I get it. Now I understand why God is doing what it is that God is doing. And so with that in mind, what I want to do is to begin with verse 1 down through verse 5 and draw out the first of the three significant ways I see in this passage that needs to grip our attention that as God's redemption plan is for humanity is unfolding here in these verses, <coughs> I want to begin by noting with you the the threatening times that God might permit. The threatening times that God might permit. Because not everything that God does is done in times of peace, calm, tranquility. Such were the days in which Jesus was born and Herod, of course, was ruling during those days. But here we find a situation now where Saul is ruling in Israel, this extraordinarily unpredictable autocrat. And the people would be at the edge of their seats wondering, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? How is he going to decide? And in what way, shape, or form is it going to now impact our lives, for better or for worse? These were, these were threatening times. And in order to get to this one to be anointed king, Samuel would have to go through Saul's headquarters to get there. Sometimes God will take you through the very settings you would love to avoid in order to get to where it is you need to go. Such are the ways of God, you see. You're picking it up in verse 1, aren't you? Notice that it begins the Lord. It doesn't begin with Samuel. No, again, here we find the sovereign one of the universe who has revealed himself as Yahweh, the covenantal relational name for our sovereign one. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Form of a question. Now, you'll notice that this word grieve carries with it the idea of continuous, intense grieving. God has put Samuel, so to speak, on the clock. Samuel, you have invested yourself emotionally. You have raised up Saul, a man who has, in the eyes of the public, looked like everything a leader is meant to be. You're to be applauded for the way in which you've given of yourself to position this man to lead. He's had every opportunity 
to lead well. But he hasn't. He has gone against God's will, fought against God's plan. And now here we find Samuel emotionally engaged in this very matter that once again he's going to have to finger his, his horn and begin to pour once again the oil into that horn. It's time to anoint a new king. You're hurting, Samuel. But God uses hurting people, which is true for us as well today. You might say, it's only when I feel good or when everything is in order that I can be used of God. But it is always amazing to me how God uses people who are emotionally spent and says, look what I've got for you. And furthermore, you're going to have to go through Gibeah to get there. Find yourself going through Gibeah these days to get to Bethlehem. How long, God is asking, Samuel, how long will you grieve? Why are you going to continuously give of yourself emotionally to this matter? Why? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Now what you've got to bear in mind is that in a prior chapter, Samuel had to be the dispenser of some bad news to Saul, whom Samuel had anointed as king. Why, in 1 Samuel 13, he informed Saul, you have done foolishly. You have uh, not kept the command of the Lord your God which, with which he commanded you. But then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now, your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. 1 Samuel 13, in particular, verse 14. So now, so now Samuel realizes that he's going to have to do something he really does not want to do. He's going to have to obey God as inconvenient as that might be. Has God inconvenienced you lately? Calling upon you to do his will, even though it means it goes through the Gibeahs of life? Fill your horn with oil, Samuel. And Samuel is saying in the words of the great philosopher Yogi Berra, deja vu all over again. Here we go again. First saw, but now who? All I know so far is it's time to once again fill my horn with oil. Notice that God does not give him the whole master plan all at once. He usually doesn't do that, does he? This is going to come in phases. Right now, all he knows is that he's to go. He's to fill the horn with oil, go. And then God says something fascinating. 
I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And now you're processing John's outstanding exposition of last week. We're at the very end of Ruth 4. You were given a little bit of a genealogy of what's to come. And you're saying to yourself, well, now wait a second. Jesse would be the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. Boaz, a true blue Jew, and Ruth, a Moabitess. We've got ourselves uh, a Jew-Gentile dynamic here in the very genealogy that's, that is coming forward. And I can just see now Issa nodding his head aggressively on that bus. I am a Christian Arab Palestinian from Bethlehem. I love Jews and I love Jesus, he says to us. Feel your horn, God says to Samuel. Fill with oil. Go. And I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Oh, God has a way, doesn't he? For you see, God's ways are not necessarily our ways. As Isaiah would put it, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Couldn't your way be around Gibeah, not through God? But sometimes, sometimes as you're doing God's will, you're finding yourselves saying to yourselves, oh, it's not around. It's through even enemy headquarters, you see. God goes on to say there, and we're still in verse 1. My track coach once always said, Gary, you're so slow. For I have provided for myself a king among his, among his sons, among David's, excuse me, among Jesse's sons. But notice thus far he has not, he has not specified in just which son it is. This is progressive revelation. God doesn't always give you the full bowl of wax all at once, you see. And so Samuel, Samuel, now we're up to this, too. He's got a question. And maybe you have questions for the Lord as well. And his question is not pushback kind of question. It begins with a how. How can I go? What's the method? What's the means? He's not saying he won't. But he would like some idea as to how am I going to go about doing this? Because he knows, he knows Saul. He knows, yes, Saul has religious inclinations. But he's an autocrat. Authoritarian in his approach. He's impulsive. He's unpredictable. And man, you just don't know what mood you're going to get in any day of the week. 
or any hour of the day. How can I go? And if Saul hears it, he'll kill me. I mean, after all, I've been loyal to him, but he might not be loyal to me. But I am loyal to you, Lord. The Lord understands the fears. And he understands your fears. And what I want you to see now, that God in his grace provides a provision by which Samuel is going to make his way, not around, but through. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I want you to notice at this point that this is not deception. This is sufficient information, just not exhaustive information. What we find here is that King Saul has forfeited his right to know because he is not, he's not on God's side, even though he's, he knows how to talk religiously. I remember back in my high school days, there was Gross Point North and there was Gross Point South, and we were arch rivals. But uh, many of us, we, hit, we went to the same church together and so on. And at that point in time, I, I played a bit of football. And so I was, I was having a cup of coffee with a friend who played for South, and I played for North. And anyways, he decided, because it was just days before the game, that hmm, we're buddies. So he would ply me with some questions about the playbook and just what it was that we might be planning for this particular game. And I just smiled. And of course, um, you know what's going on here at this point. He's using the friendship to be able to figure out the game plan. And I said, I'm sorry, we're friends, but we're not on the same team. Samuel, you need to be able to say, you and Saul, you're not on the same team. Saul has forfeited his right for exhaustive information. So we'll simply work with sufficient information. Samuel will, in fact, go to sacrifice. He just won't have to say, and he's also, by the way, going to anoint a king. Do you see the difference? And you see how this works itself out ethically? Because God is the God of truth. And so he truthfully equips Samuel to do what needs to be done with sufficient information because Saul has forfeited his right for exhaustive information because if he had acted upon that and taken the life of Samuel, we might not have a new king. We would have anarchy in the land. And so now, with that ethical process being worked itself out. Invite Jesse, you see, in verse 3, who, of course, is the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. This much now, God is being definitive about. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. In other words, he hasn't said everything that is going to take place. 
this is sufficient information. Likewise, for Samuel, isn't this the way God works? You live by faith and not by sight. I'll show you what you shall do. And then in verse 3, you and I are told, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Even though this him thus far, we're not, we're not even told who him is. Now, what interests you and interests me is that in the Hebrew, in the Older Testament, the word for anoint is matzah, where we get Messiah. In the Newer Testament, the word is Christos, from which we get the word Christ. Same idea, the same word. And so now, in essence, what God is saying to Samuel is, I want you to Messiah, uh, the next ruler. That's the idea with the anointment. You can almost sense now that Samuel is fingering his horn, dipping his finger into the oil, pondering this anointing that is about to take place. And don't you love what comes next? Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Even though this is highly disruptive, even though this is life-threatening, even though he's emotionally spent from giving of himself to someone who's opposed to the will of God, he does what the Lord commanded. And we're told he came to Bethlehem. You know, when people ask for a person's signature, of course, we call it their John Hancock. It's because of the 56 signatures on the Declaration of Independence. There's one that stands out above the rest. John Hancock's. First to sign the Declaration, he signed it in a large, legible script so that the King of England could read his name without using glasses, we're told. You see, Hancock wanted to be very clear where his allegiance lay. It was not with King George. John Hancock was among the select few that were not offered amnesty when war broke out. Well, what we find here now is this. He's going to do it God's way, not Saul's way. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. He's going to do it the Lord's way, not the way he might even feel. Comes to Bethlehem, the house of bread. The setting of, the setting of a Boaz and a Ruth. And the elders of the city, well, they came to meet him, and they're trembling. They know this autocrat. They know the unpredictability of his emotional state. And do you come peaceably? <clears throat> peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and that is true. And then he gives them a challenge. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. 
And thus far, he does not likewise provide exhaustive information as to why he has come to anoint a king. All he knows thus far is that Jesse somehow, some way, is part and parcel of this strategy. Isn't this how God works, you see? Discloses enough to keep you, to keep you going. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons. And you see, he invited them to the sacrifice. And now he gets to work with everybody who is, if you will, on the same team. And that's your first of the three hows. As God's redemption plan for humanity unfolds, I want you to notice how in these threatening times, God, it's the threatening times that God might permit and maybe, maybe right now life seems a bit a bit threatening in your experience. But you keep on keeping on, even if you don't have the sum total of information at this time that, that you know God possesses. But now you're up to the second of the three hows. That is, God's redemption plan for humanity unfolds. You know, second of all, the strategic process that God might use in six, in six through ten. You would think that, that Samuel was saying, oh, made it to Bethlehem, so now we can just make all this happen and I'll leave. But you see, um, God oftentimes chooses to work through process rather than deal with the sum total all at once. And so when they, when they came, he looked on Eliab, Eliab. And he thought, surely the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, in other words, is before him. This is Saul, part two. Saul himself was considered to be elite in physical stature, appearance, head and shoulders above the general population. And now Samuel, though up in years, and though Samuel extraordinarily experienced in his work and ministry, continues to fall into the same trap his inclination is such to do it again. Samuel, don't do it again. Stop right there. So now, sometimes God has got to break in and keep you from doing what otherwise you're inclined to do, even if you're well-intentioned. And so you are told here in verse 7 that the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The very same wording of verse 1, when the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him? There it is again. But what we have to bear in mind is that often rejection is the process by which we gain direction. Sometimes God has to say no before God can say yes. 
Samuel, again, you're looking at outward appearances. God sees the internal reality. Donald Gray Bonhouse. He talks about a point where down the streets of Portsmouth, England's great naval park, <coughs> walked a man, only one arm, blind in one eye, could not walk upon the deck of a ship without being seasick. Yet he was a sailor. What's more, he was the foremost sailor of the world. He was an admiral, England's greatest admiral, Horatio Nelson, victor of Trafalgar, author of the deathless phrase, quote, England expects every man to do his duty. But the passerby would have never picked a man by of his appearance as being master of the sea. Barnhouse writes, the passerby would have looked upon appearances that would not have seen all that lay beneath the uh, surface of this indomitable courage, unswerving purpose. For you see, man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. First Samuel 16, 7, Barnhouse quoted from the King James. Illustrating that now, here then, it's as if the Lord has stopped Samuel in his tracks, so you think. Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And again, when you examine carefully the principles of Scripture, you will find a direct connection between rejection and direction. And sometimes rejection precedes direction. And so Jesse, not to be outdone, saying, okay, if son number one is not available, let's try son number two. So after verse eight, and Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Hmm. Seven times. God says no. Has God repeated the word no in your life experience? Let me tell you about myself, said George Danzig. I'm in the physics department at Stanford. I've just returned from Vienna as the American delegate to the International Mathematics Convention, appointed by the president. He said to a writer on the plane of a generation gone by, I was a senior at Stanford during the Depression. We knew when the class graduated we'd all be joining the unemployment lines. There was a slim chance that the top man in my class might get a teaching job, but that was about it. I wasn't at the head of my class, but I hoped that if I were able to score a perfect paper on the final exam, I might be given a job opportunity. He paused to swallow, sitting next to his writing companion on the plane, blinking beyond his glasses. 
I studied so hard for that exam that I ended up making it to class late. When I arrived, the others were already hard at work. I was embarrassed, just picked up my papers, slunk to my desk, sat down, worked the eight problems on the test, started in on the two that were written on the board, and try as I might, I couldn't solve either one of those two. I was devastated. Out of 10 problems, I had missed two for sure. <coughs> but just as I was about to hand in the paper, I took a chance, asked the professor if I might have a couple of days to work on the two I'd missed. I was surprised, he agreed. I rushed home, plunged into those equations with vengeance, spent hours, and finally solved one of them. Never could get to the other. When I turned in that paper, I knew I had lost all chance of a job, blackest day of my life. But the next morning, I was awakened by a pounding on the door. It was my professor, all excited. George, George, he kept shouting, you've made mathematics history. I didn't know what he was talking about. And then he explained, I had come to class late. I had missed his opening remarks. He had been encouraging the class to keep trying, not to give up, even if it seems as though everything shouts no. Even if they find some of the problems difficult. Don't put yourself down, he said. Remember, there are classic unsolvable problems that not even Einstein was able to unlock the secrets of. And then he wrote two of those unsolvable problems on the blackboard. And when I came in, I didn't know they were unsolvable. I thought they were part of my exam. And I was determined that I could work them properly. And I solved one. And it was published in the International Journal of Higher Mathematics. And my professor gave me a job as his assistant. I've been at Stanford now teaching for 43 years. And he stopped, he looked, and with watery eyes said, I'm just going to ask you one question. If I had come to class on time, do you think I would have solved that problem? I don't, he said. Beloved, sometimes God presents you with what all appears to be unsolvable problems. Seven times, seven times the answer from above was no. What do you do at that point? Understand that this is part of God's strategic process that he could use to take rejection and turn it into a sense of direction. You're on then to the third of the three hows. I want you to notice thirdly now the overlooked person that God might choose. The overlooked person that God might choose. Now I'm glad that Samuel's got his, got his whereabouts here because Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? In other words, what am I missing here? And he said, well, 
there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. As I ponder this story while making way from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. For we will not sit down till he comes here. And I can imagine all these growling stomachs. Seven sons. And they still can't sit down for a meal. He sent. Brought him in. Now, Saul was handsome in appearance. What I want you to see here, so is David. Because in the very next verse... You're told here he was ruddy, which is very unusual in the Middle East populations there. Beautiful eyes, handsome. And the Lord said, arise, Messiah him, so to speak. Anoint him. Christos him in the Greek, in the New Testament, Messiah from the Old Testament. Anoint him. This is he. And Samuel had to go through seven no's to finally get the one yes. God is working a process here. And the master plan of redemption has got to be worked through phase by phase, step by step. And so now, Samuel, what does he do? He took the horn of oil, anointed him, and because we need witnesses now, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and I'm wondering what the brothers are thinking. And we are told the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and you would think that means that everything now goes smoothly now that the Holy Spirit has rushed upon him. Now he gets to go tangle with bears and lions in the wilderness. Now he's got to take on Goliath. And now he's going to have to play Jewish cops and robbers with King Saul. And he's going to have to live like a fugitive. The Holy Spirit rushes upon him, and this is what he gets. More hard times. More hard times. Isn't that the way that God works, you see? Dear Mama, Harry Truman wrote, I've just had the most momentous day. Maybe you'd like to know what just happened. We had a long, drawn-out debate in the Senate, and then we recessed at five. When I went back to my office, a call came from Sam Rayburn, Speaker of the House, awaiting me. Sam wanted me to come over to the House side of the Capitol, talk to him about policy, procedures, so on. But <clears throat> as soon as I came into the room, Sam told me that Steve Early, the President's confidential press secretary, wanted to talk to me. I called to the White House. Steve told me to come to the White House as quickly and as quietly as I could. Well. I told Sam I had to go to the White House on a special call and he should say nothing about it. I ran all the way to my office in the Senate by way of the unfrequented corridors in the Capitol, told my office force that I had been summoned to the White House. 
say nothing about it. When I arrived at the Pennsylvania entrance to the most famous house in America, a couple of ushers met me as vice president, took me up to Mrs. Roosevelt's study on the second floor. She and Mrs. Bettiger, her daughter, and her husband, the Lieutenant Colonel, and Steve Early were there, and Mrs. Roosevelt put her arm on my shoulder and said, Harry, the president is dead. And I was in shock. I had hurried to the White House to see the president. And when I arrived, I found out I was the president. And such are the surprises of life and the overlooked people that God uses. Because that was of 1945. And in 1948, Israel gained statehood after the Holocaust and all. And Harry Truman's closest friend and business colleague was Jewish and was greatly used to be a source of perspective for Harry Truman as president then to recognize the statehood of Israel, giving them international acclamation. What do you make of all that? God has a way of taking the overlooked one in perfect timing, reveals his choice, even after many no's before there's finally a yes. And for those sheep out there in the pastures, well, look at what appears on the screen. Because when you're touring Israel and you're making your way that 6.2 miles from Jerusalem southward to Bethlehem, keep your eye open. Because off to the side, chances are you're going to see a shepherd and sheep. And you're going to be thinking about the ways of the Lord and how he works in surprising ways, in overlooked settings, small beginnings for his glory and honor. So what does Samuel do? He rose up went to Ramah, I wonder, did he go through Gibeah? Let's stand together. And so, Father, just as the Holy Spirit rushed upon David, anointed to be king, So likewise, the son of David, time of the baptism, Holy Spirit descending. And here is, Father, the astounding thing to grip our attention. Just as the Spirit rushed upon David, only to equip him to deal with lions and bears and Goliaths and Saul's, Right afterwards, Jesus would have to go into the wilderness to be tempted of the evil one. So, Father, help us to understand 
that even when we're getting a sense of guidance and direction in life, it doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow will be easier. What it does mean is that you will be with us in our tomorrows. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.